We are, as Brian said earlier, in the middle of a series of messages entitled Ecclesia, looking at who the church is, because we've said it before, uh, we'll say it again next week, that before the church ever does anything, she is something. And so we want to recover our identity as a people of God to understand more clearly how we should function and live in this world. So this morning we're taking a look at Revelation chapter 19. Uh, We'll look at verses 1 to 9 together as we read uh, together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen behind me so you can follow along there. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, John records these words. He says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't know about you, but in my home with a daughter who is now eight years old, uh, we have gone through seasons of Disney princesses, uh, in particular Cinderella and Snow White. Now those two fairy tales uh, that have been featured in animated movies and then also in live action movies, uh, those are two of the most perhaps popular and pervasive tales on the face of the planet. They resonate with people in every culture, uh, every language it's been translated into. Uh, Cinderella actually, whenever they did the live remake back in 2015, uh, that movie grossed $534.5 million at the box office worldwide. In fact, Snow White, the original 1937 animated version, if you adjusted for inflation, okay, and brought it up to today's dollars, Snow White is the 10th highest grossing movie ever produced. It, it rang in at, at, at near uh, $982 million of revenue generated, adjusted for inflation, obviously, from 1937. But each of these stories is, is similar in its plot and in its scope. And part of the similarity is that you have this princess who finds herself under a curse, And a prince comes along, shatters that curse, and then each of these stories ends and culminates in this great marriage that everyone's been anticipating from the time that Prince Charming rides upon the scene. Okay, so you've got the leading lady, and you've got this dashing prince, and you've got a curse, and you've got rescue, and you've got marriage, and happily ever what? After. 
Right? Each of those stories resonates deeply regardless of what culture you might be in and this highly anticipated wedding as they come to a close. And I think the reason these stories resonate so deeply and captivate the human heart and mind so pervasively is because they are dramatic reflections of divine revelation. Listen, I'll say that again. Dramatic reflections of divine revelation. In other words, they show us the storyline of the Bible in, in, in stories that captivate people's hearts. Listen, this, the Bible starts this way. It starts in Genesis chapter 1 with God creating everything from nothing. And it moves forward into Genesis chapter 2 with Him forming our first parents from the dust of the ground. And then into Genesis chapter 3 as He had, had established a relationship with them, walked with them in the cool of the day, fellowship with them. They violate that relationship. They breach trust with the God who had made them and they rebel against Him, thus severing or, 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 or uh, violating the covenant that God had established with them in creation. So you have a broken covenant in Genesis chapter 3. And you see from that point forward, sin begins to unravel the lives of individuals. It begins to unravel the lives of families. It begins to unravel the lives of nations. And you see the cycle of destruction. You see this cycle of erosion of our common humanity created in the image of God. But all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there are signposts to remind us that God would not leave us to ourselves and in our sin, but that He would ultimately provide for us a Savior, that His love is steadfast, that His love is sure, and He gives hints over and over again of one who was promised to come, who would redeem His people, who would rescue His people, who would break the curse. And so the pinnacle of the storyline of the Bible takes place whenever God the Father sends God the Son who would come and He would live a perfect sinless life and He would die a sinner's death upon the cross. He'd be raised from the grave and ascend to the right hand of God from which the Holy Spirit would be sent to indwell His people and empower His people. Right? There's this, this, this rescue that takes place at the very pinnacle of the Bible. And then... As Jesus secures for Himself a bride through His coming, through His living, through His dying, and through His rising. Right? We see at the very end of the book that there's going to be a consummation one day and a great marriage will take place and a marriage supper and a feast and there'll be a banquet to end all banquets as we gather around the table and share in this dinner party with our great King and Groom. That's the storyline of the Bible, Right? That's, and that's why I think these stories are so captivating. See, the Bible over and over again speaks of God's people as being His wife, His betrothed, or His bride. All throughout the pages of Scripture. Two places. I could take you lots of them this morning, but we'll be here a lot longer than you want to be. Right? So two places. One in Isaiah, in chapter 62, verse 5, it says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God sees His people as His betrothed, as His bride, as His wife, the one that He deeply loves, has bound Himself to in covenant. Also in Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament, in verses 31 and 32, Paul cites Genesis 2.24 when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one one flesh. They'll be bound together. And then he says this in verse 32, this mystery 
is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says this mystery, not something that's really hard to understand, but just something that's been hidden for a very long time, has now finally come into the light and God has revealed what marriage has always been about from the very beginning, about this union between God and His people, Christ and His church, bound together in covenant love, steadfast, sure, stable, and saving love. It's what marriage has always been about, he says. And so God sees His people as His bride, as His betrothed, as His wife. And that's why these expressions of rescue from the curse and consummation in marriage. Listen, even the most bearded and burly dude in the room, okay? If you got a little girl and she says, let's watch Cinderella. Let's, yes, baby, let's, let's. And it even grips your heart. Because you know now that it's a dramatic reflection of divine revelation. The church is indeed the bride of Christ. It's His bride. Now, let me say this. It doesn't mean that everyone on a membership role at any and every church across the nation or across the globe is a part of that bride. Let's take a look at how the bride is described here in Revelation chapter 19. In verse 5, of Revelation 19, there's a command from the one who's seated on the throne. And he commands those who are gathered around the throne to offer praise to him. So the bride responds in obedience to the commands of her betrothed, and she responds by extolling God. She responds by praising God. She responds by delighting in God. She responds by worshiping God. She responds by singing to God. In fact, if you go back into verses 1 to 3 of, verse, of chapter 19, you see that the bride there begins to praise the Lord for His justice, for His truth, and for His victory over all of His enemies. So they sing of His might as He has brought all of His enemies under His footrest or footstool, as He's, as he's vanquished all of His foes. They sing of His strength and His power and His might. They're enamored with His truth so that they build their lives upon it. They find it to be a sure and stable foundation for their life. But they also uh, rejoice in His justice that He always acts in ways that are true, that He always acts in ways that are right, that He always acts in ways that are good. So they're rejoicing over these things. He said that's what the bride does. It praises, it submits in obedience to God and it extols Him. The bride praises the Lord. It doesn't just fill a seat on Sunday morning. Is anybody with me? A few of you. All right. So we can keep going. In the book of Revelation, listen, the bride is welcome to that banquet table. And as it's welcome to that banquet table, listen, I want you to see how it's characterized throughout the rest of the book. Because it's hard to understand one text in isolation unless you understand kind of the flow of what's been going on already. In Revelation chapter 7, this people that God's gathering for Himself, to bet- He's betrothed Himself to. Listen, He says in Revelation 7, about this about them, at verse 9, After this I look, John says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the 
am clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this bride that God's betrothed himself to and he's gathering for himself, they are composed of the redeemed peoples from every generation and every geographic location on the globe. It's a diverse bride that he's betrothed himself to. In addition, we're told in Revelation that the bride that that Jesus has betrothed himself to is made up of those who surround the throne. They're clothed in white. They're they're the faithful who've come out of tribulation and hardship and persecution. In Revelation 7, further down, verses 13 and 14, you see this. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, Sir, you know. In other words, you're like, I don't know, but you know. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 14, they're described this way, as those who have not defiled themselves. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was no lie and they were found to be blameless, he says. Now that's a tall order, isn't it? Blameless, non-defiled, that they are a beautiful, betrothed bride to her husband, made up of peoples from among all peoples who offer praise and exult in God and submit themselves to His commands. It's a tall order. So listen, here's the two things that I want us to answer this morning. How is it that we become the bride and what do we do as the bride? So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Those two things. How do we become it? And what do we do as it? So here's the first thing. How do we become this bride? Listen, what I want to say to you this morning is that the way that you and I become the bride of Christ is that Jesus has to make us lovely. He has to make us lovely. Listen, becoming the bride of Christ is not like some kind of cosmic episode of The Bachelor. Okay, uh, There might be a few Bachelor fans in the room this morning, so I don't want to be too harsh. <laughs> but listen, w- when, mm, when, as, when you isolate people from all of their social networks and you send them on exotic dates and all these really faraway places, right, and they just spend time together right, vying for each other's affection, right, and then you try to plug that back into the real world, that just doesn't work. People, that's a sermon for another day. But listen, I, 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 my wife early on watched some of the episodes of The Bachelor. So, of course, I, as her loving, supportive husband, watched alongside of her. And one of the things I began to notice over the course of these episodes as they unfolded, right, is that the casting call would go out and they would try to find 20 of the most attractive and successful and eligible women in the United States of America and they would bring them together in one location in this mansion for a dinner party with a very attractive and very successful and very eligible young man and then they would take them and they would pair you know they're just vying it's like a competition let's just be real it is what it is it's a competition to see who can win his affection and so they would compete with each other and claws would come out you guys know what I'm talking about. Have you ever seen it? Claws would come out as they competed. 
Okay? And so as they would compete, they would go on these dates, group dates and one-on-one dates, and they would have individual time. They would go to all these exotic locations, to beaches and mountains, right? snow caps and blue surf. And over the course of this season, as it would unfold, you would at times get a glimpse into the rooms that the ladies would be staying in. And when you get a glimpse into their rooms, it looked like a makeup counter at Macy's. Okay, so you just get this glimpse into what's going on there as they primp themselves and prepare themselves, then compete for the affection of this young man. And here's what's going on. They were trying to make themselves lovely so that they would be loved. They were trying to make themselves lovely so that someone would set his affection upon them. And listen, becoming the bride of Christ is not a cosmic episode of The Bachelor. It's not. In order to become the bride, Jesus is the one who makes us lovely. We don't make ourselves lovely in and of ourselves. The only way that we are lovely is because we are loved. That's how we become lovely. In fact, that's what, that's what John even writes here in Revelation. In verse 8 of chapter 19, he says this, We're told that it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Listen, it's it's difficult to understand some of what's going on in Revelation unless you have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. So this language here takes us back into the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, here's what you find, that the priests, they wore these clean linen cloths under their more ornate outer garments. And so this fine linen was a part of their, their... Their wardrobe was expressly designed, we're told in Exodus, for beauty and for glory. Signified the purity of the priesthood amongst God's people. And yet, very quickly, early on in the life of Israel, that purity was tarnished. In fact, Malachi, one of the prophets of the Old Testament, even goes on to describe how dung, okay, feces was smeared upon the garments as they defiled them and polluted them. But here's the reality that in Jesus Christ, a new priesthood, the fulfillment of that priesthood has come into being. And so this new priesthood, we're as as the brides of Christ, as priests, as the kingdom of priests we saw a few weeks ago, we're clothed in priestly garments with the righteousness of Jesus and the bride of Christ is granted the right to wear this beautiful, beautiful, fine linen. Now, when it says it was granted to her. You know what that means? That word literally translated means it was given to her. It was given to her. And it's also in the passive voice. So for all of you non-English majors out there, this is what it means. It means that somebody else gave it to her. She did not stitch it on her own. By her own efforts, by her own labor, by her own works, by her own deeds but someone else provided it for her. And you're like, that sounds a little bit contrary to what the very next verse says in the text when it says that these fine linen garments are the righteous deeds of the saints. Right? So that sounds like, a little bit like the bachelor, right? I'm impressive, and so God picks me. I'm successful, and God picks me. I'm attractive, and God picks me. But that's not at all what's going on here. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, including this in its context, Here's what you begin to see. First, you begin to see that the bride indeed must make herself ready for the marriage, but she cannot make herself the bride. 
that once God sets his affection upon her, then yes, she makes herself ready for the consummation and for the union, but she cannot make herself the bride. The only way she's able to become the bride is by Christ's blood that purchases her, it purifies her, it cleanses her, it washes her, it pleads her case before the Father. That's the only way to become the bride. Second, you see the bride must clothe herself, but she's given the clothes that she's going to wear. She's given the clothes that she's going to wear. She didn't stitch them for herself. She didn't go out and buy them for herself. She didn't leverage her deeds to accomplish them for herself. It was given to her by God's grace. And if you read throughout the rest of the New Testament, here's what you're going to begin to see. Is that these deeds of the righteous deeds of the saints that are the fine white linen in which they are clothed, right? The clothing comes first and the, the deeds come second. Right? So you're clothed in the grace of God and because you've tasted of the goodness of God, you've tasted of the grace of God, then you want to live a life that's honoring to Him. And so then the Holy Spirit empowers you now to walk in steadfast obedience to the Lord. To walk in the mercies of God. To walk in obedience to His commands. To offer Him the praise of your lips and of your lives. But it's, you don't do this and then... You deserve the garments. The garments are given free of charge by grace through faith and in Christ. And then as a response to that, you begin to walk slowly and progressively is what Jesus does is He takes those who were unlovely and He sets His love on them and that because of His love, He makes them lovely. I'll take you a bunch of places in the Bible to show you that, but I'll take you to one place. It's Ephesians chapter 5. Again, listen to what Paul says. He says this in verse 25. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice the order here. Christ loved the church. Christ gave Himself for the church that He might sanctify her. That's the purpose. Why did He give Himself? So that He would cleanse her. So that she would be able to be presented before Him as one without any spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That she would be as one before Him in complete holiness and purity. Right? But what she's lovely in that presentation. But the only reason she's lovely is because she was loved. And when you get that order backwards, let me say this, you do not have Christianity, you have something else. Something else. You got something. It just ain't Christianity. It's not gospel. It's a bunch of religions stacked upon tradition and rules. So listen, church, and uh, we're promise we're about to get on to what we do, but I, just, I, I want you to see this. In 18, the 1860s, a guy by the name of Samuel John Stoney wrote a hymn entitled, The Church is One Foundation. And in the first verse, right out of the gate, this is what he says. He says, the church is one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Listen, the glory of the gospel Hear me, the glory of the gospel is not just that Jesus came to forgive you. 
But listen, that he came to bind himself to you in steadfast covenant love as his betrothed bride. He's our groom. He sought us in our rags to clothe us with his righteousness. Listen, he found us in our pollution to make us pure. He set his affection upon us from before the foundation of the world and died not only to make our salvation possible, but to actually save those whom he has loved as a good and gracious groom. You're like, what does all this have to do with me? Let me tell you what it has to do with you. Everything. Because you can lay down this morning knowing this, you can lay down your own self-salvation project. You can lay down all of your attempts to sanitize your image. You can lay down all of your efforts to try and promote and market a brand to the world. Right? Anybody on social media? Listen, our attempts at self-promotion and self-marketing existed long before Facebook did. But what Facebook did is it inflamed it. And so many people live their lives in an attempt to project an image to the world that is not, does not correspond to reality. Which is why you only see the really cool restaurants they eat at, but not when they stop at McDonald's. Which is why you only see, right, when they're on top of the space needle, but not whenever they're down in the basement. Why you only see right, their, the fine clothes as they get dressed up for a night on the town, but you don't see them kicking back in their PJs. Right? We s- seek to sanitize our image because we all want to be loved. So we try to make ourselves lovely. But listen, if you understand this truth, that it's only Jesus that can make you lovely, and you lay down all of your attempts at self-salvation, and you stop trying to come to God, listen, with your hands full, saying, God, look at everything that I've done. But you come to God with your hands empty and say, God, I have nothing that I can offer. I can only receive everything that you have to give. Would you save me? And listen, when you do, the promise that we have from Him is that everything in your life that sin has twisted and warped and distorted will one day be straightened out. Whether in this life or the age to come. That everything that sin has dissolved in your life will be reconstituted. And that's a promise, church. Only Jesus can make you lovely. Second of all, what does this bride do as she awaits this marriage ceremony with her betrothed. Listen, Jesus is the one who's made us lovely, but we are called to make ourselves ready. We are called to make ourselves ready. Look in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 19 again. We're told that on the day of Jesus' return that it will be said of the bride that she has made herself ready for this union consummated. She has made herself ready for the return of her groom as she's awaited him by faith, waiting day after day after day after day. Now listen, there's not a bride 
who's ever walked an aisle that has not made herself ready for her husband. Right? There's not, there's not a bride who has not been in that bridal room prior to the ceremony. Okay? With all the makeup, with all the hair people, okay, doing all, I don't know what you ladies do, but doing all the stuff to the hair, got the makeup, got the dress, got the veil, got everything flowing just right. There's not a single bride who has ever walked the aisle that has not made herself ready for her husband, not prepared herself for that day. And listen, it's no different for the bride of Christ. After she's been clothed in the fine white garments, after she's tasted of the grace of God, after she's been brought into union with Christ by grace, through faith, and in Jesus, she aims and strives for the rest of her life to make herself ready for the day in which she will walk the aisle. In which as you go further on in Revelation and the clouds part and the white horse comes and Jesus comes back with a robe dripping in blood, right, with his all tatted up with a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God, ready to make war against all of his enemies, right? That will be the day in which this union will be consummated. And the church that's been betrothed to him will be brought to him and become one with him. We've said it before, we'll say it again, so that we no longer see him as in a mirror dimly. We see him face to face in all of his beauty and radiance. So how do we make ourselves ready for that day? First of all, if you're not in Christ, if you've never crossed the line of faith, if you've spent your life trying to make yourself lovely before him so that he might love you, I want to tell you this morning that what you need to do is step back from trying to make yourself lovely and rest in His love for you. Repent of sin, which is trying to manipulate, run, rule, and control your own life. Put God as your debtor because of all the good things that you've done. And say, God, I have nothing to offer. That's you this morning. The way you need to make yourself ready for that day is by giving up on your own loveliness. And trusting in His love. And if that's you this morning, I'll be at the kiosk in the back of the room on your way out. I would love to connect with you, answer any questions you have about that, and visit with, with you more about that. But if you're in Christ this morning, let me give you two things that you need to do as you make yourself ready for the return of our groom. First of all, is that in this life, you learn to cling to Him. You learn to cling to the groom. See, one of the ways that the bride has made herself ready in the book of Revelation is by clinging to her groom in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, in the face of martyrdom, in the face of suffering. Listen, my, my own family's suffering pales in comparison to the suffering of the saints throughout the centuries. But listen, we, we've had our share of suffering. When my some, many of you know the story, but when my daughter was born in 2011, she was born with a birth defect called craniosynostosis, which has required, I've lost track, seven surgeries in eight years to write some of the things, that, the way her body formed in utero. At the age of three months, they removed her entire frontal lobe of her head, reconstructed all of that. There were neurosurgeons and plastic surgeons and maxillofacial surgeons involved on the consult, and they pieced it all back together and put it all back in place. At 18 months of age, they removed the crown of her head back in the back, and they pieced all that back together appropriately and put it back into place. 
Uh, not long after that, she'd be in a series of eye surgeries trying to correct eye muscle deficiencies in order to get her eyes to focus in the same direction. And listen, I can remember as we sat at the outset of that process, going into that first surgery with a three-month-old baby, okay, can't even sit up yet, couldn't even control her head yet, with a three-month-old baby, and I can remember sitting in the pre-op room of Medical City Children's in Dallas, waiting for the plastic surgeon and the neurosurgeon to arrive, and just praying that the Lord would be gracious and that He would give wisdom to the physicians. And I can remember handing her over to the anesthesiologist. Because my wife, she's like, you got to put her in her arms. Because I can't. <laughs> so I put her in her arms, and I walked to the bathroom and wept like a baby. Right, because I'd been strong up to that point. But I got in the bathroom, and the, 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 the fountain just opened, and I began to weep and cry out to the Lord. And I can remember posting on Facebook on several occasions during that time just these prayers that came out of a book entitled The Valley of Vision, which was a collection of Puritan prayers from the 16, 17, and 1800s that just captured the emotion that my heart was experiencing in those moments as I sought to cling in the face of suffering to my groom. And listen, my daughter's surgery is pale in comparison to the suffering of the saints throughout the centuries. I, I will grant you that. I've had my taste of it. And so have you. And every suffering, every season of suffering that you encounter is an opportunity to cling fast and hold tight to the groom who's betrothed himself to you. Every time you face opposition, every time you face persecution, every time you face hardship, every time you face difficulty, there's an opportunity to cling and hold fast to him. One of the ways that we make ourselves ready is by clinging to the groom. Not only in seasons of suffering, but also in the face of temptation. Anybody tempted last week? I guess just me, right? So I was the only one tempted. So here, I'll, I'll preach to myself. I was, since I was the only one tempted last week, listen, they're in, in the face of temptation, whenever those sins that so easily beset us that the author of Hebrews speaks of. Whenever those habitual patterns of behavior in our lives that Jesus is in the process of freeing us from as He makes us more and more lovely. But whenever they begin to rise up, when our flesh begins to itch, even your flesh just begins to itch sometimes and you just want to scratch it, right? Because you want what you want and you want it now. guess I'm the only one who wrestles with that too. So, but when, when those things happen... You have an opportunity. You can either walk by the Spirit by clinging to the groom or you can walk according to the flesh and breaching covenant with Him. And you can yield to sin and you can give yourself to it in the moment and you can find it to be exhilarating for a time. But if the Spirit of God indwells you, here's what you find afterwards. <laughs> Grief, sorrow, and sadness. So in the face of temptation, would you cling to the groom in prayer as he continues to sanctify you? This is one of the ways that we make ourselves ready is by clinging to him. Because listen, 
If we will not cling to him in this life, what makes you think that you're going to want to cling to him upon the day of his return? Second, and then I'm done. Not only do we cling to the groom, but we cherish the bride. Listen, if I just want to get cheap amens this morning, I could just stand up here and I could just beat up on the church. Right? Because that's a novel thing to do these days, right? You can write a blog post talking about decrying all of the, in the abuse of churches and all of the, the, the hypocrisy in churches and how the church has never lived up to her expectations or my expectations. But listen, I want you to know that whenever we speak ill words against the church, what you're doing is you are heaping scorn upon Jesus' bride. Listen, it doesn't mean you can't speak truthful things. But there's a difference between speaking truthful things in hope and speaking truthful things out of hate. Do you know that? When you speak truthful things, you can say things that are accurate and true about your own experience in churches, but with the hope that one day God's going to make all that right. Versus speaking things that are truthful, maybe about your own experiences and, 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 and things that you've seen in churches with just a bitterness and a resentment and a hatred toward the church. There's a difference between those two things. You can speak truth with hope, but we're not licensed to speak truth out of hate toward the bride, the betrothed of Jesus himself. We're called the cherisher in the same way that whenever... You, if you're married in the room this morning, you stood before your spouse that day with all of your family and friends surrounding you. And in your vows, you pledged to do what? To honor and to cherish. To hold as valuable. To see the, the worth and exceeding beauty and glory of your spouse. To pursue that. To labor for it. To pray for it. To give your life in service of it. By the way, if you didn't know that's what you were doing in marriage, that's what you were doing. <laughs> no one ever told you that before. That's what you were doing there in the wedding ceremony. The same is true of Jesus' bride. They were called to cherish her. And one of two ways to do that. One, you cherish her in covenant. In a covenant relationship with the church. Listen, we, we say at Redeemer at times that, listen, you can attend as long as you like, but we're going to continue to call you to plant your life somewhere. Whether that's here or whether that's at a church down the road, but to plant your life somewhere, to covenant with a people, right? To stop just dating churches. That's what many people in our day and time do. They will date church after church. Some of them are real short-lived relationships, right? One and done. Like, one date, Ah, we're not going back there. Uh, some of them are long dating relationships where you date for years and years and years, but you never take this of commitment. As a result, you never end up cherishing the bride. Listen, one of the, so at Redeemer, the way that we do that is we ask people to work through a, a membership process with us. So just after Labor Day will be the next time that you can work that process with us. We'll do an event called Review where we'll work through the vision and the mission, the doctrine of our church, introduce you to some of our leaders, let you ask questions that you might have. After that time, if you're interested in moving forward in membership, we would have a covenant members class where we would talk through our church covenant. 
and what you're pledging yourself to as a member of this local body. I'm not saying you, you, you're not a Christian if you're floating out there somewhere, but listen, what I'm saying is this. Is that I don't know how you reconcile the call to love one another and to serve one another and to pray for one another and to give your life away to one another and to admonish one another and to teach one another and to correct all these one another's of the Bible without that expressing itself in a very local context where you're committed to those people and those people are committed to you. You cherish the church through covenant. And you cherish the church through service. Listen, you cherish the church through service by offering the gifts and abilities and the talents that God has given you both within the walls of the church and to take the church outside these walls into the community. See, God has equipped some of you in very unique ways that you would have an opportunity to have inroads in the lives of people that you might advance the mission with that I could never contact with because of where you work, because of where you live. And God has gifted some of you with phenomenal gifts of teaching, phenomenal gifts of hospitality, phenomenal gifts of leadership, phenomenal gifts of administration, phenomenal gifts of service and of helps, phenomenal talents and abilities to work in design, to work in video, to work in sound, to work in caring for our kids and changing diapers on a Sunday morning so that a family, when they walk through these doors that have never been here before, they're trusted and screened and healthy people who are going to help take care of their kids while they come consider whether or not this is a place where they need to plant their family. You've been given gifts, church. And one of the ways that you cherish the bride is not by withholding those gifts, but by leveraging them so that she might grow up into full maturity. So if you're not serving somewhere, and you're a member of this church, it's time. It's time to cherish the bride through your service. Jesus has a bride to whom He's betrothed Himself. And it's not the Kiwanis Club. It's not the Rotary Club. It's not your running club or your fishing club. It's not your CrossFit gym. It's not your craft circle or your book club. It's not your school. It's His church. He's making it lovely because He loves her. Cling to Him and cherish His bride. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we come expressing our own gratitude for Your grace in our lives. Father, for the way that You sought us, You came from heaven to secure for Yourself a holy bride that You washed us clean by the sending of Your Son that You did not wait for us to make ourselves lovely before You loved us, but You loved us in order to make us lovely. And Father, for if there's any in the room this morning who've had that backwards all their lives, they've been trying to climb the rungs of a ladder to You to impress You with all their successes. 
Father, I pray that you would show them that every rung on that ladder is rotten and will ultimately give way. But you have not waited for us to be able to ascend to you, but you've come down to us. And that your Son has done everything necessary for us to know and walk with you, to be reunited with you, to have a relationship with you, that he's dealt with our sin at the cross. And he can clothe us in righteousness because he lived the life that we could not. Father, for those of us who are Christians, I pray that in our seasons of suffering and in the face of temptation, you would help us to hold fast with white knuckles to your Son. And Father, you would help us to cherish the one for whom you gave your life. We pray it in Jesus' name.